Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hey, Jim, good to see you for our latest edition of The Other Hand. As always, ton of stuff going on. Uh, I think that we'll probably call today's podcast Inflation, 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 because that's the story of the moment. That's what's driving all financial markets. It's what's going to affect your interest rates in Ireland and everywhere else in the world. Anybody that's on a mortgage or an overdraft or anything really involving borrowed money from governments to individuals, there is a stack going on. I, I know that you're going to talk in a minute about the Irish package of measures designed to try and alleviate the cost of living crisis. We've talked about that. We've, you have written about that. And we've had lots of feedback about that and indeed other things that we've been talking about. The inflation story is the one that's driving the interest rate story. The inflation picture is leading to things like the package of measures. We've had a similar one in the UK. As we speak, the speculation now is that markets are, are pricing in quite chunky rises in US interest rates. The markets are betting that come March next month at the next Federal Reserve meeting, US interest rates will go up probably by 50 basis points, half a percentage point. There's even speculation in the markets that we could get unusually, not uniquely, but unusually uh, a, a rise in US interest rates before the Fed formally meets. That's how bad it is. That's in the wake of US inflation numbers that have been out this week, highest inflation in 40 years. It's worth digging down into those numbers a little bit without getting into the weeds too much, because it shows you just how difficult this inflation problem in the US and therefore globally, how tricky it is to analyze. 
because it's not the inflation that we've been seeing in the past. It's very different. It's very unbalanced. And so it's still very difficult to call on the basis of what we know where things are likely to develop. Now, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about here, within those inflation numbers this week, the price of used cars year over year were up nearly 41%. Now, there are a lot of factors driving that, both supply and demand, and that's the issue. The extent to which it's supply, the extent to which it's demand, determines how much you think interest rates are going to have to go up. Because if it's supply, central banks shouldn't be doing anything, in my opinion. And that's basic economics, because central banks are not there to deal with supply shocks. There are lots of technical reasons for that. But if it's the demand for used cars pushing these things up, and it's not supply, then the central bank has to act. And the, the balancing act that every, everywhere, every central bank is having to do is make that decision. New car prices were up 12% year over year, so it's a peculiar second-hand car price story, but not restricted solely to that. And of course, we know it's also um, a big energy price story. In the United States, energy price components within their inflation numbers were up 27% year over year. And again, should central banks react to that? Probably not, unless it's leading to a wage price spiral. And that's the, the, the other main concern. Within the components, service prices are up 4.1%. Doesn't sound a lot compared to those numbers that I've just spoken about. But that's the concern about it leaking into other areas that it may therefore be something to do with demand rather than supply. Because service price inflation, which is the biggest part of most of our economies, running at 4%, 4.1%, is twice the level that it should be running at. The, the story is one of goods rather than services, though. You can split the US inflation number between goods and services. Goods were up 12.3%. Services, as I say, just up just over 4%. And within goods, it's mostly, but not entirely, a story about durable goods. And the reason why I mention this is that durable goods going up 18.5% does smack of supply chain issues. But these are hints rather than definitive conclusions that, that we might draw. It does paint a very confusing picture for us and for central banks. I know that we had some inflation numbers out of Ireland this week, and my brief look at them said to me that it's essentially, in Ireland, even more unbalanced, that looking at the components of the Irish inflation numbers... It's almost all energy. Yeah, the uh, predominant driver of Irish inflation has been energy, electricity, gas, petrol, diesel, all up quite dramatically outside of that whole energy related area. And of course, that feeds into airfares as well. But outside of that, uh, the housing market is the main driver with private rents up by 8.4%. Some estimates from the likes of DAF.ie would suggest that private sector, private, private rents inflation running at around 11%. We've heard a lot of commentary here in the media over the last few days about spiraling food prices. Well, that's certainly not been reflected in the official data yet. Grocery prices are estimated to have increased by 1.7% in the last year. Relative to other price increases, that's not shocking. But I guess if a 1.7% increase comes after a decade of declining food prices, as well, this does mark a bit of a turnaround does mark a bit of a shock and I suspect over the coming months here you are going to see a greater contribution from food price inflation to compound the energy problems because all of the food producers that I talk to and I talk to a lot of them uh, because of a few roles I have 
Uh, they are facing dramatic increases in input costs over the last year, be it fertilizer, be it energy, be it for electricity and heating vegetables and so on. So the ma- massive increase. And I know today that the trade union movement has come out advising private sector workers to now go and look for pay increases of five and a half percent. And this, I guess, is where you start to see inflation becoming a persistent problem, because if the trade unions push for and achieve a five and a half percent pay increase in the private sector, and they are in a strong position to push that at the moment, because many private sector employers are facing significant shortages of labor and retention and recruitment are big issues. Those employers who produce goods and services are facing all of those increased input costs. Inevitably, if they are forced to increase wages by that sort of magnitude, well, they will turn around and try and pass that on to the consumer. And for the first time in many years in this country, um, and indeed globally, there is now an opportunity to push prices higher for the consumer, given the environment that exists at the moment. So it, it is definitely... In answer to your question, it is definitely being driven by energy prices, but uh, there are some other factors now starting to kick in there as well. And the next few months will be interesting in that regard. And of course, the January inflation data will reflect the impact of the introduction of the minimum unit pricing of alcohol. And I know, uh, you know, people talk about this as a major disaster for inflation, but alcohol accounts for about three and a half percent of consumer spending. So it's it's not the most dramatic contributor to headline inflation. Uh, but nevertheless, it does compound a lot of other areas of upper price pressures at the moment. The point about alcohol being three point something percent of the consumer price index speaks to something that's being very popular discussion point here in the UK, in that uh, some prominent consumer rights advocates have been pointing out that not everybody has the same weight on different bits of their consumption basket, that the consumer price index is an average of average weights. Different people, particularly people in different income brackets, particularly poorer people, it is argued, have been facing quite different inflation rates to the ones in the national averages. And in particular, poorer people are suffering more inflation than others. This has been disputed by the Office for National Statistics. They're saying that they've looked at it quite closely, but the data is sparse. And so I think the jury is still out on that one. But I do know many listeners will be jumping up and down at this point saying that, you know, I spend X on food and food is is doing this on the basis of what I spend. And that is perfectly true. Different people have different consumption baskets. And it's perfectly possible that the personal inflation rate that you're suffering is less or more than the national inflation rate. I suspect that your inflation rate is going to be higher as a result of minimum unit pricing, Jim, because the weight of alcohol in your consumption basket is a lot higher than three and a half percent, isn't it? Given what you've said about your damp January. <laughs> well, Chris, I checked yesterday. The weight is about three and a half percent here in the CPI, yes. okay? You're not going to be drawn on the I'm weight not, of Jim, Jim, Jim Parr. I, 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 I'm into a wet February now, so damp January is history. Uh, you you mentioned the impact on secondhand car prices in the United States. Up Isn't that an amazing number? Forty one percent year over year. What? Do you, any idea what's going on there? Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary number. Uh, here in Ireland, new car prices in the year to December were up by ten point nine percent. It is estimated that secondhand car prices are up by 
over 20%. Not quite sure. We don't measure it very well. Sorry, we don't measure it at all, actually. So, But it's estimated somewhere around 20%. There's a few things happening in the global motor supply chain. Um, there is a massive shortage of semiconductors. There's a scarcity of new cars. And almost every car market I'm aware of, the ability to achieve the targets that they set for 2022 in terms of new car sales is heavily contingent on the availability of new cars because of the semiconductor problem. Okay, and if you don't have a lot of people buying new cars, you have less secondhand cars being channeled into the market. And as a consequence, there's a scarcity of secondhand cars, prices rise. But there is also the move towards electric and hybrid vehicles. We saw in January of this year in Ireland, for example, that there was a very, very significant increase in electric vehicles. I think about 11% of total car sales, which is the highest we've ever seen. Uh, but there's also been massive increase in demand for hybrids. So that in turn, because there, there is a scarcity of EVs, because there's, there's a limited uh, quantity of EVs available for different markets, that is then resonating down through the whole car supply chain and putting that increased upward pressure on secondhand prices. And the other thing here in Ireland, and, and this is not just a US or Irish phenomenon, it is exactly the same situation in the UK. You know, one of the features of the Irish motor industry over the last three or four years has been a massive surge in used imports from the United Kingdom. I think one year there, about three years ago, we imported, I think, about 119, 120,000 used cars from the United Kingdom. Okay. And the same year we sold roughly the same number of new cars. So it's it's a very, very significant part of the Irish market. But in the UK at the moment, there is also a scarcity of secondhand cars. And as a consequence, we've seen a dramatic decline in those used imports into Ireland. So that's compounding the difficulties. So there's all sorts of stuff going on in the global car supply chain. But I think a lot of it does come down to that semiconductor issue and also the supply of EVs. So you've mentioned a few things there, Jim. The car price story I find really fascinating and the numbers are, are jaw-dropping. But one would assume that given that it's all to do with a shortage of semiconductors, which will eventually be sorted out by the market, there are some very chip big chip makers out there investing an awful lot of money in expanding supply. We've had an announcement, I think, in the last few days from the European Union that they're going to uh, invest heavily in domestic European production of semiconductors. Obviously, this won't happen overnight, but eventually it will be sorted out. Uh, the supply chain will sort itself out. That's what supply chains ultimately, more often than not, will do. It strikes me that that's nothing at all to do with central banks and that, you know, the idea that that would cause interest rates to suddenly rocket up is plain daft. And if central banks were to react to that, uh, they would be making a mistake. And I'll come back to that in a minute. The earlier point you made about wage rises is also equally fascinating on a number of angles. The wage rise thing, if it became embedded and workers around the world started demanding wages in excess of their productivity gains, that's something that central banks traditionally and quite rightly often do do something about. I would say from a sociological perspective, as much as an economic one, that um, workers getting more wage rises surely is something, from one perspective at least, to be applauded. We've talked a lot on this podcast 
um, over the last year, um, as indeed many other people have done, about inequality. And surely, if from a, that perspective, if inequality is the key political and economic and social problem facing the world, workers getting a few more quid in their pockets is, is a good thing. And again, one wonders just how much central banks should react to that. But what I'm describing here is the dilemma facing central bankers. It's the dilemma facing all market participants because where interest rates go will in large part determine where all our asset prices go from the money we have in the stock market for our pensions and savings through to the house prices that we currently worry about. If interest rates do shoot up, <clears throat> the house price problem that we face may not be quite as big a problem as we previously thought it was. But this week we also had in stark contrast to what the US and UK central banks have been saying, and in the case of the UK, actually doing with respect to interest rate rises, they are and have been raising interest rates already. And we and the US central bank, one prominent Federal Reserve governor said only yesterday that he favours a half a percent increase in March. So we know what's coming from the UK and the US. Philip Lane, your your Irish ex-Irish central bank governor, now chief economist of the central bank. He was the chief. He was the central bank governor, and is now the chief economist of the European Central Bank. Has doubled down on his membership of Team Transitory. I don't know whether you saw that this week. He gave gave a little uh, talk, which you can get on Twitter and, and other places, the ECB website itself, in which he's saying, "Yep, it's a supply shock, guys, and um, we need to be relaxed about this." Everything we've discussed there. Would suggest that it is a supply side shock, uh, but you make the point, Chris, about uh, it being a good thing that you see this significant increase in wages because it helps address inequality. Yeah, but you think about the businesses that are being forced to pay those higher wages, um, and for many businesses, you know, labour is the biggest input cost. Not all, but for many businesses, it is. But what happens if I'm running a business and if my labour bill goes up by five or six percent? Okay. At the same time, I'm facing into energy prices rising dramatically, insurance prices rising dramatically, basically all of the costs of doing business. And indeed, one of the problems we have here in Ireland is that the costs of doing business generally very, very high. And, and this is something that the National Competitiveness Council measures and comments on every year, but it's largely ignored by most people. So the reality is, Chris, that if those higher wages are passed on, on top of all those other supply side price increases, well, then those businesses either face significantly narrower margins and some will accept that, others won't be able to. So they will either increase prices or they will go out of business. That, I think, is the reality. Um, I was reading a book during the week, which I'm sure you read many years ago, Development as Freedom by Amerta Sen. And I came across a quote in that from Michael Bruno, um, an economist, I'm not sure if he's still around or not, but he described inflation as an inherently persistent process and the degree of persistence tends to increase with the rate of inflation. So he's describing a situation where, you know, as inflation becomes embedded in the system, it becomes very difficult to take it out of the system. And that's what should worry central bankers at the moment. Increasing interest rates will not address a supply side shock. But if it is feeding into a whole spiral of rising prices, well, perhaps the one thing you can do is to try and curb demand. 
Well, let me put the other side of that case, Jim, and I'm going to be a good communist here, um, believe it or not, and say that this is not going to be a sustained wage inflation, which I agree the central banks are worried about and are reacting to. But if it's a one-time rise in wages, um, I think it's something that we can be relaxed about and even applaud because of those inequality things, inequality worries that we've been talking about for so long. And I can't see why necessarily a rise a good, a decent rise in wages, particularly for those lower paid workers who we know um, have, uh, in many cases, not particularly great or attractive jobs, with all due respect, um, and aren't paid very much, but nevertheless are typically essential workers, people in the caring professions, in the caring industries, um, people who are delivery drivers, people who work in retail, all of them don't, an awful lot of them don't earn very much money. And so if, there is a, if there's a one-time step increase in their wages that is only one time, and it, this could be just a change in relative prices rather than a persistent inflation, to use an economic term. If it's just a one-time change in relative prices, that's not something that central bankers can do something about. And that switching back to economics away, from, financial economics away from my Marxist points that I think I was making there, if you look at the way in which financial markets are pricing the long-term likelihood of where inflation is, is going, and we can do this quite technically from looking at bond prices and option prices and all other derivative type prices, the, these things are quite explicitly measured. Despite the rise in inflation in the United States in particular to well over 7% now, the long-term inflation expectations are, have been absolutely rock solid from all financial derivative prices. They expect this inflation to be temporary, which is exactly the same thing as saying that it's just a one-time relative price shock and that we can be relatively sanguine about it. Certainly the bond market in the United States has been, you know, we've got 2% 10-year treasury yields, nominal yields at a time of 7 plus in percentage points inflation. And when you when you disentangle all, all of the technicalities, markets expect U.S. inflation to stay steady at two, two and a half percent forever after this year and possibly a bit of next. I think there's a lot of argument about this being a one time step increase. Chris, can I ask you this time last year, what were the derivative markets saying about inflation this year? So, same, th Pretty much the same thing, to be honest. Exactly. And they were wrong. Yes, no market, and that that is the right post. Of course, it is, Jim. That markets might be saying whatever they're saying, but markets can be and often are wrong. Chris, um, you're trying to paint me here as the big bad capitalist, but I'm think looking at it from a business perspective. Uh, with all of those input increases they are facing, and now significant wage pressures coming on top of that, um, I would totally believe the more money you can put into people's pockets, the better, particularly low-paid workers. Um, I think there are better ways and more effective and less dangerous ways of doing it than true wage increases. So, for example, a reduction in the tax burden, the USC, for example, um, or a reduction in VAT rates, for example, um, or um, and, and this is something I think we need to talk about seriously at some stage is the introduction. I mean, the two of us in this podcast, and that is the introduction of universal basic income. Um, I think there are better ways of addressing these inequality problems than by simply pushing up wages. And in fact, I think there's a distinct risk that if you got a significant bout of wage inflation, it could actually exacerbate um, inequality ultimately. 
yes, I can see where you're going with that argument, because one of the things that I think firms will do is um, for those ones that sadly go out of business as a result of not making any money anymore, that is, is, is one way in which people lose their jobs. But the other way in which that many firms that have this option, and not all firms do, of course, but the firms that have the option to invest in technology rather than people will now do so. In, because if the cost of labor is going up, then you will invest in machines, computers, and other ways of delivering your products, delivering your services. In a way, it could, it, it could be argued that this will re- produce a capital investment boom that will be labor substituting. And that's not good for workers either. So we, we, obviously, this, this is going to play out in ways that neither of us can foresee. But I want to introduce one other aspect of this, which hasn't received any attention apart from one writer, a, a favorite of mine, actually, a guy called Noah Smith, at risk of advertising somebody else's Substack website. I would strongly urge anybody interested in things US in particular to look at Noah's writings. And he was looking at the real value of US national debt over the course of the last while, last year. We've only got data on this to the end of the third quarter. But when you look at Trump's near $1 trillion stimulus package towards the end of his presidency and Biden's $1.9 trillion first couple of packages that he did, that was a huge addition to the national debt of the United States, right? Yeah. With me so far? Yeah, indeed. We're talking trillions here, not billions. What do you think the real value of the US national debt did last year? So taking the increases in national debt that came via all of those stimulus packages, all the money for which was borrowed. You could argue ultimately it was printed because that borrowed money was supplied by the Federal Reserve. But let's not get into that technicality. It was an addition to the US national debt, as indeed the Irish national debt in nominal terms went up and everybody else that did stimulus packages. So we had trillions added to the US national debt last year. So from the 31st of December 2020, to the most recent data point, which was nine months later, actually, so it's a bit out of date, to the end of the third quarter, what do you think the real value of U.S. national debt did? I'll give you one one of two possible answers, it, it, up or down. It fell, Chris, because yes, I, I, I read Noah's piece, okay? Yeah. Oh, so you know the answer. Yeah. I know the answer. <laughs> um, but that, that piece was interesting in the sense that it showed how inflation erodes the real value of debt. And, you know, obviously, that's been a big problem for people over the last 10 or 15 years. There's been no inflation. Um, A certain level of inflation is absolutely desirable from that perspective. So that's, you know, despite all that extra borrowing measured in trillions, the real value of the U.S. national debt actually fell last year, or at least during the first nine months, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. A lot of people would say that's a terrible way to reduce the national debt. It's a kind of inflation tax. It's surreptitious, it's stealthy, it's underhand. But the fact is, the US is less indebted than it was, despite doing all that fiscal stimulus. And I, to a greater or lesser extent, those sorts of analyses will now be done, one suspects, for, for economies like Ireland, the UK, and, and elsewhere. So, so, Chris, are you joining, are you climbing up the branches of the magic money tree here? Uh, you know I am not, Jim. I, I do not think that that for a second. But I, I, in a way, what I'm describing, what I think we're both describing, actually, is the extraordinarily difficult job that central bankers actually have. And the one thing I would say, in addition to that, is that the situation is going to change dramatically this year. If we'd had this conversation at any point in the last, gosh, 10, 15, 20 years, 
we wouldn't have been talking about inflation in this way. We were saying, well, provided nothing much changes very much, we're not going to talk about it. And nothing did change very much. But you look at the evolution of inflation through 2021, from the start of the year to the end of the year, and you look country by country, region by region, at how inflation has gone up a lot, virtually everywhere, <clears throat> with the exception of Japan, actually. But even there, they're showing some signs in a Japanese way of, of, of having some inflation. It, it, it can't persist. And it's either going to fall of its own accord, and that's if you're a supply side person, supply chain person, and on team transitory like Philip Lane and, and a dwindling band of others, or you are in the camp that central banks are going to be able to do something about it because they have to, doesn't matter. It's got to change because we can't have seven and seven and a half percent inflation in the United States and five, six percent inflation rates typically elsewhere closer to home. And it's the way in which it's going to change is the most interesting. It could happen of its own accord, according to Philip Lane. It could happen as a result of what the central banks are going to do. So that leads me to conclude very firmly that we're going to be living through a very difficult environment and an environment which is going to change. We're going to get big changes. And it could be that central banks lose control of the process and inflation runs too high for too long. And then we're getting really back into 1970s style issues. We could get a policy error if Philip Lane is right, but other central banks and the ECB ultimately panic and raise interest rates a lot, then that could be a classic monetary overreaction to what's going on. So there are, there are myriad possibilities here, but we know that things are going to change and they are changing in terms of the market for short-term interest rates because people bet on what the Federal Reserve and other central bankers are going to do. I think it was the worst day for two-year interest rates in the United States yesterday for over a decade. And people were talking about, you know, big, big moves in, in short-term market interest rates yesterday that have been unprecedented. We haven't seen the likes of those market moves for a long period of time. So the changes in, in our financial economic environment are already starting. And I think there's an awful lot more to come, but incredibly difficult to call which way it's going to go. And I'm saying, I guess, that these central bankers, for once, have my sympathy, because I, I think they've got an inordinately difficult job. But also, the politicians have a difficult job, because as we've spoken about before, and you've written, they're trying to deal with one major aspect of this problem. The thing that's causing the interest rate problem is the cost of living crisis. And I believe the Irish government solved that crisis this week. Was that right, Jim? It's all over, Chris. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, the government announced a package uh, totaling around 500 million uh, the basic in, to try and tackle the cost of living. Uh, the energy credit, uh, which was originally penciled in at 100 euro in March, has been increased to 200 euro. OK, that's inclusive of that. Uh, the fuel allowance lump sum, and that's people on low incomes get a fuel allowance every year. They're getting a lump sum payment of €125 Euro to help them cope with higher fuel prices. The drug payment scheme threshold has been reduced from 100 to 80. So in other words, you'll be able to get an extra €20 Euro back on uh, drug refunds. Um, there's an increase of €10 Euro in the weekly income threshold for working family payments. That's a social welfare payment. And there's a 20% reduction in public transport from the end of April to the end of the year. 
and then there's some changes to the cost of school transport. So that that's the package basically trying to address these cost of living pressures. As I say, totaling 500 million, quite a significant amount of money. But um, is is it going to radically change people's lives? No, it's not. But I I really believe that the sort of magnitude of change needed to significantly improve people's lives would be much, much greater than that, okay? And it, it is, and I'm not a fan of this stuff, okay? As I said in the last podcast, I think this is very much being driven by populist politics and this view on the opposition benches that the way to solve all problems is just to throw money at and spend more money. And I think it is worth bearing in mind, okay? And I... Okay, I accept that the National Treasury Management Agency, which is the agency responsible for funding Ireland's national debt, is pre-funded. So in other words, it's not borrowing new money to fund this stuff, okay? Uh, But ultimately, um, as those debts are rolled over in a higher interest rate environment, uh, then it becomes more expensive. And it is, I think, sobering to reflect on the fact that this afternoon, Irish 10-year bond yields are trading at 0.82%, so 82 basis points. In a historical context, that's an incredibly low number. But just a few short months ago, that was minus 0.25. So there's been a significant increase in long-term yields. And that does reflect this discussion we've had for the last 25 minutes about global inflation. Global bond yields are rising because the markets are worried about inflation. They're worried about short-term interest rates rising. So, uh, but anyway, that's what the Irish government has done. Um, And of course, the opposition politicians are skating. It's not enough. Uh, It's scratching at the surface. It's addressing the wrong areas, blah, blah, blah. I just, I throw my hands in the air with politicians. Jim, you're thumping the desk there. So I think our our listeners know that you're you're throwing your hands in the air with the thumps that are coming through. I apologize for that. I'm going to leave them in in when I edit this podcast. Um, I think Mark Paul wrote a very interesting article in the Irish Times today in which I think he echoed in a slightly less technical way your comments in in which he said that uh, governments can't solve every ill. And um, maybe this this is one of them is the point that you're making there. We, we live in an environment where, of course, populism in particular is the pretense, perhaps this is a good definition of economic populism, is that there isn't a problem out there that the government can't solve. And that if you're a, an opposition politician of a populist nature, you can promise to solve all people's ills. Um, and that's just not possible, yeah. as, as we know. Chris, before we wrap up, um, we get a lot of emails um you know, some in agreement, some in disagreement, most polite, some slightly less polite. Um, and, we, and we can't, well, sorry, I don't have time to answer all of those emails uh, because I have a day job to do. But um, I think there was a few interesting ones in the last few days. I mean, I made a comment in the last podcast about the the rescue of the banking system here and that I expressed my belief that whether you agree or disagree with what was done with the Irish banking system. And um, I would agree with parts of it, disagree with other parts. But I did make the point that without a functioning banking system, an economy couldn't function. And there was a comment in that the Icelandic banks went bust and that the economy of Iceland um, survived. Okay, Um, The Icelandic banks got into serious trouble. They were nationalized. They were bailed out, very similar to our own. 
one difference, I guess, in an Icelandic context was that bondholders were burnt in that case, as far as I understand it, uh, which obviously didn't happen here. But comparing Iceland to Ireland, um, I think, is a moot point as well, because a country with a population of 366,000, it doesn't have much in the way of foreign direct investment. Um, It is not a member of the European Union or the euro area. So Ireland is very different. We're part of the European Union. Uh, We're part of the euro area, significantly larger economy uh, with a very, very heavy foreign direct investment presence here, as we've often spoken about. So the notion that you would allow a banking system disappear without trying to rescue it, uh, I just don't think would work as much as populist and as popular uh, and as attractive as it might sound. um, I just don't think it was an option. No, and I think you're absolutely right. There were more parallels than differences between the Icelandic and Irish situation. Burning the bondholders is an obvious difference. And I'm on record as saying that um, there were certain bondholders bailed out by Ireland that should never um, have gotten their money back, in my opinion. I agree 100%. But there we are. That that ship sailed an awful long time ago, and that, that really is ancient history. Um, some other comments that we've got while we're on this subject of responding to readers, it's, it's emails and comments on our Substack site, which if anybody's interested in joining the conversation, please go onto that site and do join in. We got one very thoughtful and lengthy um, comment from uh, a fellow that works in the tech, tech industry, and he was responding to some of the things that we've been talking about with respect to pensions and he expanded the discussion into the tax treatment of pensions, the tax treatment of incomes, and the way in which the tax system has some very, at times, perverse incentives to do one thing rather than another. And he was talking about the way in which taxes from gambling uh, are done, which they're not. Um, the the uh, differential tax rates between capital and income, your capital gains tax rates are often very different to your income tax rates and all things like that. And he was talking about the dog's dinner or is it the dog's breakfast? I'm not quite sure what the right metaphor is here. Um, That is the Irish tax system. And it's not just the Irish tax system, of course, because one of the things that people like us go on about year after year after year, about which nothing is done, is that the tax code is far too complicated, has far too many anomalies, far too many gaps that clever accountants can drive a coach and horses through, too many anomalies. And it needs to be restructured and simplified. And structural reform of the tax system is something we've been calling for for decades, the simple fact is it just never happens. The tax code gets longer, you know, by page count and more complicated with every budget. Um, that's an iron law of life. No politician ever is incentivized to simplify it. That's true of all jurisdictions, not not least Ireland. And you can see this guy's comment on our website. Um, and I would agree with everything he's saying that that these a lot of the tax system has some very perverse effects. I I think the most pertinent point he makes, Chris, is that the whole system is stacked against long-term financial planning. Yeah. Um, We don't do the long-term, do we, in in so many different ways? No, no, we don't. Uh, Some other shorter comments that we received were to do with housing and the housing crisis. And um, Harold Macmillan was a UK prime minister of many decades ago, long dead, um, once got himself into awful trouble by telling the British people at the time a very famous quote that's gone down in history that sunk him is that you've never had it so good. The fact that it was true made no difference at all. Um, Everybody rose up in protest and listed their problems and listed the ways in which the the citizens in the UK 
were in a terrible state. The, the, the empirical truth, the facts are that he was right. The UK had at that point in economic history never been richer. But of course, you're not allowed to say things like that. And a couple of people on our website have been echoing similar remarks about Ireland, that A, Ireland is a fabulous place to live, and that the housing story it, it has many different causes, some of which are amenable to government intervention, absolutely. But in some ways, it, it's, the housing problem is a function of Ireland's success. That, that, you know, that an awful lot of people from around the world want to live in Ireland, and the current generation of young Irish people are staying at home, which your generation, Jim, typically did not, and all of these different things. So I'm not going to echo Harold Macmillan and say that Ireland has never had it so good, even though that happens to be true. Um, it's not to diminish the problems, but it, it, it's, it's always important to put these issues into some kind of context. The terrible problems that we face are very different to the ones that we had in the past. They need action, absolutely. But sometimes we need to recognize that um, these problems that we have are in part at least a function of our success. Okay, Jim, I think we should probably call it there. We've gone over time. So um, have a great weekend and speak to you next time. Absolutely, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.